Well, hi everyone. Um, I'm Belinda and I'm new here. I've been here for two months now. I'm one of the ministers um, here. And hello. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word together. And just want to pray that um, what is of you would take place in our hearts, which would lodge itself in our hearts and minds. And what is not of you would um, just evaporate, <laughs> fall to the ground like a stone and be forgotten. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's imagine that the year is AD 30 or thereabouts. Um, Jesus has been walking the streets of Palestine for well, as my favourite hymn says, three and thirty years, and he's done what only God can do. He's healed the terminally ill. He's restored life to the dead. He's conquered the darkness of the spiritual world, held back the forces of the natural world. He's taught new and astonishing things about a spiritual kingdom where a good God reigns. And all the while, he's been loving, loving, full of compassion and grace and wisdom and insight. He says he's God and everything about him points to the truth of that. But now the writer of this part of the um, Bible, Mark, um, now he tells us that the time has come for Jesus to die. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, um, they have set their minds to murder. It's only days away. Now, if it was a movie, I imagine it would begin um, zoomed out with a view of Earth from space. And maybe there'd be clouds swirling and lightning flashing and that ominous low rumble. You know that one you hear in the movies? That ominous low rumble telling us all is not well. The cosmos is holding its breath as it awaits the unfolding of an event that will change everything for everyone for all time. And if it was a movie, then the camera would zoom in, rocketing towards the earth closer and closer past Jerusalem where thousands, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims are pouring into the city to celebrate this thousand-year-old festival, the, the festival of the Passover and um, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. They're pouring in for this biggest worship celebration in the Jewish calendar. It's accompanied by sacrifice and feasting. It would zoom past these noisy crowds of people and their children and their animals, and it would zoom past the synagogue leaders whispering behind their hands in the shadows, and it would focus in on a normal little house in a little village called Bethany, a short walk from Jerusalem. And there it would pause and it would rest on a little gathering, Jesus and some of his friends eating together, reclining, relaxing, doing life. Jesus, the king of the universe, is about to bear the cost for the sins of the world and he's spending his last hours doing normal things. And into this scene comes an unnamed woman. She's possibly someone who lives at the house 
um, less likely someone who's just come in from off the street. Most probably she was one of Jesus' friends. And um, another gospel writer, John, describes the same incident and he says that this is Mary, the Mary whose brother Lazarus died and Jesus came and raised him to life. Whoever she is, this woman had been included by Jesus as someone he sees as worth having around. And that was a big deal in those days in that society and maybe in some today. Well, it's pretty clear that this woman loves Jesus, isn't it? She breaks open a flask of alabaster stone, very precious, probably a family heirloom, and now broken, it can't be used again. And she pours the contents of this prized possession, some perfumed oil worth more than a year's wages onto um, Jesus' head. And this is an expression of honour. Um, <laughs> can you imagine the other people there criticising her to each other? Can you imagine them saying, oh, what a waste. So the, the, look at it all dripping all over the floor. Someone's going to have to clean that up now. And they rebuke her harshly for that um, extravagant action, saying it's a waste, which is quite insulting to Jesus, really, isn't it? She could have sold it and um, used the money to, to help poor people. It's fair enough. Fair enough point, isn't it? Um, I was thinking about what a year's wages is today and I was on the bus and I saw an ad for a bus driver. They're looking for bus drivers, if anyone's interested. Um, there was an ad and it advertised $70,000 a year and five weeks annual leave. And I thought, yeah, it's not bad. I could do that. Um, so just say $70,000. And if you wanted to sponsor a child in Thailand, for that would, that would cost, which is something else um, that has just come across my path this week, um, that costs $48 a month. And because I prepared this earlier, I know that $70,000 could pay for 121 sponsored children in Thailand a year. Actually, if you're very clever and you're pedantic and you're a genius, you might have just worked out it's actually 121.527 children, but we'll round it down. Um, so it's sort of a reasonable point that they made, right? Um, that didn't have to be harsh, but there, there's, there's something in it. But Jesus defends her, and um, there's nothing in the text to tell us his tone it could have been, leave her alone. But I like to think it was, leave her alone. To Jesus, what she has done is good. In fact, it's so good that it will be remembered in association with the gospel throughout the world, throughout history. And here we are. Now, although Jesus did um, often say cryptic things that went over his friends' heads, for those at that dinner who, were cared, who, would care, who cared to pay attention, um, they might have noticed something odd that Jesus said. His reason for defending this woman wasn't just that it's a lovely thing to do, although it was, but also that in a sense, pouring the perfume on him, she has prepared him for burial. The perfume anointed him for his death. Clue, Jesus is going to die. 
Now, if you've been here on other Sundays this term, then you'll know that the writer Mark has really concerned himself with gathering evidence to answer the question, who is Jesus? And here he wants us to know that Jesus is a person who will die a real physical death and will be buried. And note also that Jesus accepts the woman's extravagant gesture. Again, a clue. Either he's a narcissist or actually he's someone who really deserves that kind of attention. Um, The other thing that Mark is doing here is he's drawing a contrast between the woman's response to Jesus and everyone else's response to Jesus. Have you heard the saying, if you can't be a good example, you'll just have to be a horrible warning? I think that sort of applies here. Horrible warning number one, the priests and the teachers of the law. Now let's not miss the irony here. They are the representatives of God. They are the leaders of the Jewish people in worshipping God. In fact, they're just about to celebrate the biggest festival in their calendar, which commemorates God saving his people. And at the same time, they're plotting to kill I mean, just think about that for a moment. I'm a minister. I know what it's like leading up to Easter. It's really, really busy. Weren't they busy? Didn't they have other things to do? And the answer is this. What had become their top priority, even over worshipping God, was murder. They have their hearts set on murder. And in fact, they are delighted by it. Horrible warning number two, Jesus' friends. They don't like the woman's expression of love for Jesus. It's over the top and frankly embarrassing. It's unseemly. And what's a woman doing there anyway? Perhaps they like being included in the inner circle of this teacher who does miracles and who makes them feel accepted and valued. They're part of the gang. They're part of a movement. But there are right ways of doing things, and this is just silly. It's extreme. It's over-emotional. Horrible warning number three, Judas. One of the 12, Mark says, part of the inner circle. One of Jesus' closest friends now seeks out the chief priests who want to murder his friend, and he agrees to betray Jesus for money. Not a year's salary though, no. No, for 30 pieces of silver we later find out, which is more like one or two months worth of salary. Can you hear the low rumbling start to roar? And the good example? Well, no wonder Jesus was grateful in the midst of all this, this beautiful man, Jesus, who's calm who's spending time with his friends, as all the while those who represent his father seek to destroy him, as his friends at best are ignorant and at worst are turning on him in the most devastating way, this man has one person in the scenario who demonstrates a deep, raw, real, unashamed and lavish love for him. And I wonder perhaps if she knows Jesus well enough that she has somehow intuited 
what, some sense of what lies ahead for him. Maybe she can hear the rumbling. We don't know. But here's a question. How many other people does Jesus hold up as an example to be linked to the gospel when it's preached throughout the world? How many? None. So there's something really important about this incident. And what I want to know is what is it? Because I've heard sermons preached on this before. I've studied it. I've read about it. I've preached on it myself. Haven't you heard it? Maybe preached on it? And I've heard um, that this is about worship, that this is about worshipping God in a way that's generous and extravagant. And I think that's true. But what I want to know is, what does that look like here in 21st century Sydney? Jesus isn't physically here. We can't pour perfumed oil on his head. And for me, if I am looking for a way to worship God generously, to show my love for God, I would most quickly jump to giving money away to help those who are vulnerable, to help the poor. I know that God cares about the poor. The Bible's full of it. Um, Back in the Old Testament, the Israelites were repeatedly rebuked by the prophets for their, um, as Donald Trump might might put it, fake worship, praising God with their lips and yet exploiting the vulnerable, neglecting justice and the needs of the poor. And in the New Testament, another example, there was a rich man, wasn't there, who asked Jesus, what does it take to follow you? What does it look like to love God? And he turned away sad because Jesus' answer was, sell what you have and give the money to the poor. And there's tons more. So it seems like a reasonable um, place to go. Good answer. But Jesus, he specifically addresses this here, doesn't he? Quoting from a law commanding the people to care for the poor. Deuteronomy 15, the poor will always be with you. And his point is that actually there are always opportunities to help the poor. And actually it's a given that those who profess to have faith in God will be doing so. Sort of like Jesus read my mind and said, yeah, of course you'll do that. This is about something else. Um, Maybe it's singing in church, hands in the air. Can be um, a bit out there in some Anglican circles, at least. Um, Last week I went to the Hillsong Women's Conference, Colour Conference, at the New Entertainment Centre and there were thousands of women there. And I went with my daughters and I loved it. Loved it. It was moving, it was powerful, the quality of the music and the production was outstanding. And as far as worshipping in the sense of singing songs, praising Jesus, it's amazing. I was like, hands in the air, you have no rival, you have no equal, you know? I was really getting into it. And there was a lady in the next, um, in one session sitting next to me and she'd made up all her own actions to the songs. Um, but, but sometimes she would punch the air and I'd have to duck. She'd almost punch me in the face. I thought I was going to get hurt. But get this. 
they open the doors uh, 45 minutes before each session because there's so many women. So the women queue up and then they run in and their bags of seats and they arrange their cardigans and their handbags so all their friends can, can sit with them and, and be in the good seats. There's good seats. Um, so on the last session, I, I did that. I queued up 20 minutes before the doors opened and I got a great... I, I was there early and um, there were only a few people in front of me, so I was like, yes, I'm going to get a good seat. But as the time came for the doors to open, um, the people in front of me called their friends. Their friends kept arriving. And so I kept getting moved further and further back in the queue. And I got really grumpy. I was going to miss out on the best seats for my worship. I started to stand my ground, even though it meant I had people uncomfortably close to me. And when my daughters arrived to join me, I, shamefully, moved my resentful thoughts into passive-aggressive behaviour. And I called out, come on, everyone else is letting people in. <laughs> what is that? I was hostile and rude to other women, to other daughters of God. And why? So I could get in first and have the best spot to worship? Like, what good is that? What good is my arm waving? What good is my passion? Is that generous worship? So what is the answer? Well, um, as I wrestled with this passage this week, I realized that <laughs> in digging so hard for a deeper meaning, I was missing the forest for the trees, that what it means for us today is the same as what it meant for that woman 2,000 years ago, for Jesus' friends. And that's simple and it's profound. You see, that woman, she had got to know Jesus. She'd experienced his kindness, his acceptance, his grace, his peace. And she loved him. She loved a person, a real person. And he was the best person she'd ever met. And that's all. And that's the way of Christian faith. It begins with getting to know Jesus. It goes on with getting to know Jesus. It's just about loving the person of Jesus, and that's all it was ever about. But the problem is that just like the religious people in Jesus' day, we can get ourselves so confused between religion and relationship. Religion contains and it controls and so often it's about who belongs and who doesn't belong and it's about rules and power and it can take us so badly off track. Um, there's an American writer, Annie Dillard, who I like and, and this is what she says discussing different ways of doing church. She says, The higher Christian church has come at God with an unwarranted air of professionalism with authority and pomp, as though they knew what they were doing, as though people in themselves were an appropriate set of creatures to have dealings with God. If God were to blast such a congregation to bits, the congregation would be, I believe, genuinely shocked. How easy it is to miss the point. How easy it is to become preoccupied with rules, 
getting the best seats, with being moderate and respectable and thinking privately that God's quite lucky to have me on his team. How easy it is to become preoccupied with ensuring that we never breach the containment lines that keep things in hand, that keep things from getting too raw, too personal, too real. But when we do that, we miss out on what matters. We don't worship. We become burdened, judgmental, possessive. Isn't that ironic? Religion can actually stop us from relationship with Jesus. See, if I or a thousand women who love Jesus and know Jesus raise their hands and sing as an expression of that love, that's a beautiful thing. If thousands of women who don't know much don't know Jesus much, raise their hands and sing, that's just religion. It might feel good, but it's not worship. Um, About 25 years ago, um, John and I were leaders of a Bible study group, very young and inexperienced leaders of a Bible study group. And um, I remember one evening um, after we'd met with the group, uh, um, one of the members came to us and he said, I just want to ask you, how much money should I give to church, to God? Because... I'm not really sure how much to give and I don't want to waste my money by giving too much. And I feel so sad when I think about that. We said to him, just don't give anything at all if that's how you feel. But now I wish I'd said to him, just get to know Jesus. Forget about the rules. Forget about religion. Just get to know Jesus. Get to know him. Get to know that although he's not physically here, he's alive and he loves you. He accepts you. He wants you in his circle. He understands your pain. He will forgive you anything that needs forgiving. And he is the smartest and best and most beautiful person there ever was. Get to know that he allowed his friends to betray him and he allowed Judas to hand him over and he allowed those leaders of a religion that claimed to be about God to murder him because he knew he was the only one who could beat death on behalf of us all. Because no cost was too much to make things right and that his death and resurrection was the only way to do that for the sake of fixing our brokenness and all that is wrong with the world. He is for you. Just dwell in that. Get to know this God person and then keep getting to know him. And when you feel dry and there's no worship in you, then go to Jesus and keep getting to know him. Because um, I believe that when you know Jesus, not when you know about him, not when you experience all the things we add into the mix of church and Christianity, not when you know the people who claim to represent him, no matter how good they are. I believe that when you know Jesus, you can't help but love him. I really believe that. And I believe that this woman's example tells us that when you know Jesus, you'll love Jesus. And when you love Jesus, you'll freely do what you can. Remember Jesus' words, she did what she could. 
You'll do what you can, you'll do everything you can to outwardly express what is in your heart. And that could look like a million different things. Could look like giving money to the poor, pouring out your love for God in song when you're alone with him or with a thousand people, 10,000 people. Could look like treating the people that he loves with dignity and respect. It could look like letting someone take your place in the queue with a genuine smile on your face. And it looks like being unafraid to declare, I love Jesus and I think he's someone worth following. That won't always be easy. Maybe other people won't get it, even the religious people, maybe especially the religious people. But Jesus will get it and he'll be saying, Leave her alone. Leave him alone. This is a beautiful thing. And sometimes we'll get in the way of ourselves, won't we, like me at Hillsong? We'll wrestle between our desire to love Jesus and our desire for all the other things we love. And we might be inclined to look down on someone else's way of worshipping, but beware. Because Jesus, remember his words, leave her alone. God is concerned with our hearts. And may our hearts be concerned with God, with Jesus. May what's in our hearts overflow into abundant, genuine worship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a privilege it is to know you. And um, you know how inadequate we are in, in loving you and showing that we love you and, and even wanting to love you. Please help us in our frailty. And Lord, um, please have mercy on us and to help us to know you more and more, that we might love you more and more and that um, in loving you, what is in our hearts might overflow into um, outward action, action that is genuine and reflects who you are. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Is that someone applauding?